All right, we're going to continue tonight just a series on how to witness to different groups and just kind of a reminder. So first off, when we give the gospel, obviously we're always giving the same gospel. Everybody gets saved by the same gospel, but not everyone has the same hangups. So when you're talking to different groups, you might need to focus on certain aspects of the gospel uh, with one group more than you will with the other. So last, and so what we're kind of doing too, I'm only, I'm only planning on doing four of these. And what we're kind of doing too is we're categorizing people because obviously there's a gazillion different religions and with every religion there's all kinds of variations of that religion. So uh, what we're kind of doing though is just kind of, you know, putting, you have your Catholic influence uh, that and a lot of people uh, that are Catholic or Protestant have a lot of the same hang-ups, and so we covered them already. And tonight, I want to talk about uh, how to witness to Pentecostals. And Pentecostals, while they're a very specific religion, when it comes to a lot of their false doctrine, um, there's a lot. It's influenced a lot of other religions, including Baptists. Especially if you get down in the Bible Belt, there's a lot of Bapticostals, as we like to call them down there that are very influenced by the Pentecostals. And so, while we're going to focus on, just like when we focused on Catholics, and there's a lot of stuff you can use for a lot of other people, we're going to kind of focus on Pentecostals. And I think if you know how to kind of address a lot of these things, it's going to help you with a lot of the other groups. So we're mainly focusing on people that you are likely to run into out here. And yes, we regularly run into Catholic influence or Pentecostal influence people out here. So you've got to be ready for these things. So the first verse I want to look at, 1 Peter 3.21, says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this verse right here, I think is an extremely clear verse showing what baptism is, that it doesn't put away the filth of the flesh. It does not clean you up. The blood of Christ is what does that. But it is symbolic. It's the answer of a good conscience toward, toward God. It's something that we do after we get saved. And it testifies you know, something that, we, that happened in our hearts. And so we, I think this verse proves it. Yet at the same time, I see other religions use this verse as a proof text that you ought to get saved. And Pentecostals specifically do that. And I want to read the United Pentecostal Statement of Faith. And I'm, I'm picking the United Pentecostals too because they're kind of my favorite just because of the fact uh, I've worked with a lot of United Pentecostals and they're like the real conservative ones. They're like real hardcore. I, I don't like liberal versions of things. All right? If you're going to be something, go all the way. And if you're going to be a Pentecostal, go all the way. All right? Be, I mean, a oneness, uh, you know, repent of sins, baptism for salvation. If you have not spoken tongue, you're going to hell. That's what you ought to be if you're going to be Pentecostal. You need to have the extreme dress code. I worked with one. His wife doesn't even wear a wedding ring, no jewelry at all because it identifies a Jezebel, is what he told me, and even told me I wasn't saved because I've never spoken tongues. And you know what? I'd rather talk to that Pentecostal than the ones that just, oh, yeah, it's all good. I hate that. You know, it's like, be, at least be extreme. If you're, or, you know, be, be all the way. Be the real thing if you're going to claim it. And so, in, so, in their statement of faith, they say, we believe that salvation is available to all. Second Peter 3, 9. Through faith and obedience to the gospel, namely repentance, water baptism by immersion in Jesus' name for, for the remission of sins, 
and receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in other tongues. So right there, and what, and what some will say too when I've talked to them and I've asked them to clarify it, it's like, well, you know, do you believe that baptism saves you or you're going to heaven because you spoke in tongues? And you know what they'll say? Well, no, you get saved by faith in Christ. But if you get saved, you will get baptized. You will speak in tongues. Now, that sounds kind of like Baptists, except Baptists have just picked different works as proof that you're saved. Okay, and again... I'm not going to preach about Pentecostals tonight, but maybe I should sometimes. A lot of junk from the Pentecostal world has infiltrated or, you know, the leaven has crept into a lot of IFB churches. And so this is right there on their statement of faith. And I've talked to a number of them. And this is, in fact, what they believe. So uh, we, we don't have time to get into all this, a lot of this stuff, but we're... So where Baptists, I do think, have been influenced, it is. It's in just replacing the evidence of salvation. And we got to understand a lot of people that we're going to talk to, they're going to be very confused on that because they're trying, a lot of people that we talk to, they profess the right gospel many times, but yet if you ask them, are you 100% sure you're saved? They're not 100% sure. You know why? Because their evidence of their salvation is often in their own works. And that's why we've got to show, no, the evidence is in the blood of Christ. It's in the work of Jesus Christ. That's the evidence of your salvation, not your own works. And so uh, you can, you know, so while the Pentecostals say we believe it's baptism or fulfilling of the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in tongues, because a lot of Baptists claim to have been filled by the Holy Ghost, but they haven't spoken tongues. So they'll say, well, you didn't really get filled with the Holy Ghost then. And so Baptists, what they've just done, they've replaced the work. They've said, you will go to church. I was joking with Brother Sean, the lady that came this morning. It's like, well, she must have really got it because she showed up for church. My man, you know. But obviously, uh, that's foolishness. That's, that's Pentecostalism right there. But replace with everyone. It's the same thing. All it does is causes confusion. And we've got Baptists today, and not just Baptists, but people in all kinds of churches They've made all kinds of professions, but people, they make them over and over and over again because of bad teaching on salvation. And that's a shame. We've got to be clear on these things. So look at 1 Peter 3.21 in your King James Bible. Because I read this verse, I'm like, how can people, why would people use this? And the Pentecostals, they use this verse in their statement of faith to prove you had to be baptized to go to heaven. I would not use this verse if I wanted to try to prove you had to be baptized to go to heaven. But yet they do. And so I thought, you know, a lot of people have used this one. I wonder what the other versions say. And so I just looked up the NIV, most popular one, and follow along your King James Bible. Look what the NIV says. It says, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, see, you and I, we, we read the King James says not to putting away the filth of the flesh. And we read that saying, yeah, baptism doesn't cleanse you of your sinfulness, of the wretchedness that we are as Christians, which is what Peter's been talking about through the whole book of Peter, talking about the wickedness of the Gentiles and the lascivious life that they lived. And so, you know, he's making sure they understood, you know, the baptism that saves you, not, not the putting away the filth of the flesh. It's an answer of a good conscience towards God. This here says, not the removal of dirt from the body. 
Does anybody on the planet think that the purpose of baptism is to clean you up physically? No, that's what we take baths for every day. Nobody thinks that. And I don't think anybody thought of that back in Peter's day. And so when Peter, you know, he put in that clarifying statement, not the removal of dirt from the body. Did, did any, do we think anybody in the church back then thought, you know, that's why they have us get baptized when we go to church because, you know, we stank and, you know, we need to get the dirt off of our body. That's absolutely ridiculous. It's, there's no doubt what this verse is saying. It's saying that, no, it does not cleanse you. The blood of Christ is what cleanses you. The blood of Christ is what gets rid of the filth of the flesh. But the baptism is a picture of what, of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. So there is no way you can get that teaching from a King James Bible, but you can't get anything but that from an NIV Bible. And people try to say, Bible versions doesn't matter. And I'm not preaching about that tonight, but I, I just, I read that and I thought, man, that's, that's bad. People get so mad at us for all this trash that we talk about the NIV. I can't say anything good about it when I read stuff like that. So, first thing you got to do though, uh, you're going to have to overcome when you're talking about people influenced by Pentecostals, is you got to explain them what it means to be baptized by the Holy Ghost. And go ahead and go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. We've covered some of this stuff while going through the book of Acts, but I think it's worth repeating and I want to briefly cover some of this stuff. But a lot of people will say, well, I'm an Acts 2.38 Christian, even if they don't want to claim that they're a Pentecostal. And what they mean by that when they say I'm an Acts 2.38 Christian typically is I believe you've got to repent and you have to be baptized in order to be saved. They have added that work for salvation and then they go to Acts 2.38 and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, there's a lot of things in the Bible that have more than one meaning to it. And I'm not going to go over this, but if anybody needs to refer back to it, if you weren't here, go to my Acts 2 sermon, where I talked about uh, physical or uh, spiritual and national repentance. Peter was preaching both to these people. He's not only trying to get them saved as individuals, he is trying to get the Jews to repent of the killing of the Messiah because their nation was in danger of being judged as a result of them killing the Messiah. So he's preaching that and it's very important that people understand that, but it's also important too to understand what the baptism of the Holy Ghost even is. And the Bible could not be more clear about this if we look at the Bible as a whole, because even John, who's the one who starts with the water baptism, even John the Baptist made a distinction between water baptism and baptism, baptism of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 3.11, John speaking, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. So we have a water baptism, which is what Pentecostals are talking about, which is what every religion is talking about. When they say you have to be baptized to go to heaven, they're talking about water baptism. John, and then they will use Acts 2.38. They'll use verses about, you know, being, you know, about the Holy Ghost or baptism of the Holy Ghost to prove it, but they will apply it to water baptism. These are different baptisms. John said, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. 
So folks, right here, John, while preaching to these people, he said, I'm, I'm preparing you people for the Messiah. I'm baptizing you unto repentance. I'm preparing you for the Messiah when He comes. I'm preparing you for someone who is going to come after Me. And while I am right here today baptizing you with water, this one, the latch of whose shoe I'm not worthy to, to unloose, He's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So there's no doubt the baptism of the Holy Ghost is separate from water baptism. And we've got to understand there's that distinction in Acts chapter 1, which comes before 2. It says, and being, in verse 4, and being assembled together with them, Jesus speaking, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So right here we see in the book of Acts, it makes a distinction between the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Now, who baptizes with the Holy Ghost? Jesus does. Okay? Jesus is the one that does that. Jesus is the one that did that. We can only baptize people with water. Okay? You know, that's all we have the power to do. But it's Jesus Christ who gives the Holy Ghost to people. So understand, when we see some references in the Bible to baptism, sometimes it's water baptism, sometimes it's Holy Ghost baptism. And the Pentecostals, they like to put the two together uh, and, and make it one. But no, they are different and you have to understand that. Water baptism is nothing more than a public testimony of an inward change, just like the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, says, for as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. As Christians, as believers, we are to always remember what Jesus did on the cross. And one of the ways that we show his death is through the Lord's Supper. And that's a tradition that we have. That is an ordinance that we have as a church. And the other ordinance that we have as a church is baptism. Romans 6, 1 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we should be also in the likeness of His resurrection. So baptism, it's a likeness. It's a picture. It's not the real thing. Okay? Your baptism that you do in water is not salvation. It is not the work that saved you. Do you all understand that? Now, there was something like that that saved you. And you know what it was? It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what saves you. And that's the baptism that saves you, what Jesus did. And so whenever we go and we get baptized in water, that's just us making a public profession of Jesus Christ. We are showing the Lord's death, burial and resurrection. Through that baptism, it's symbolic. So we spiritually confess Christ by faith from the heart and with the mouth. Well, that's, that's what we do. We're confessing Christ. We're, we're making a profession. Romans chapter 10. Go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 10. Verse 1 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Notice the problem that Israel had is they kept wanting to do something, some kind of work to prove that, to, or to save themselves. And let me tell you, that never, that was always a problem, even for those who pretended to get saved, the Judaizers that crept in unawares, they tried to add works of salvation, and even some, we'll see in the book of Acts, that I believe got saved, they got very confused on this early on in the church. But understand, the problem the Jews had, they were not willing to submit themselves into the righteousness of Christ. And we have the same thing with the Pentecostals and any other work salvation. People just cannot just fully depend on what Jesus did. It's like, no, you've got to do something too. Something, anything. You know, and folks, you can add, anything you add to salvation messes it all up. You add baptism, you mess it up. And that's an easy one to do because the baptism is something we're, supposed, we're commanded to do. But folks, it, it doesn't matter what you add to it. You can add going to a confession. You can add, you know, helping an old lady across the street. I mean, you can add picking your notes. I mean, you add anything, it messes it up. You can't do that. But yet, they want, they just, they've got to have something. And that's why the Jews, they missed it. But verse 4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses, Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth, doeth those things shall live by them. Listen, if people want to bring up the law, okay, go ahead, but you have to live by them. You've got you to gotta follow all of them. You don't get to pick and choose. You've got to follow all of them. I don't recommend trying that. It's not going to work. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not within thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up Christ again from the dead. What sa- but what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith with which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. And if you're a soul winner, you know that rest of that passage frontward and backward. And so what we do is, as Christians, we, we, we spiritually confess Christ by faith and uh, you know, from the heart with the mouth. And a lot of the things that we do, like baptism, like the Lord's Supper, these are just public professions of our faith. It's a public profession of something that has taken place Inwardly, these are not requirements for salvation. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation, just as a wedding ring is not a requirement for marriage. And you know what? Point that out. You know what? Try, you know what? That's what you should, I, I never. The Lord just gave me this. I wish I had this back when I had that argument with the. Because I remember this United Pentecostal guy I worked with. He was a pastor's son. He had just got married, and I pointed out. I was like, I was like, oh, you got married. He's like, how come you're not wearing a wedding ring? And the guys don't wear ring, wedding rings either. I should have told him he's not really married then. Like, you know, no, you're not really married unless, you know, you wear the wedding ring. No, no marriage without a wedding ring. But no, that's, that's just a picture. That's just a symbol. And you know what? It's the same thing. You know, if, if, when they say no salvation without baptism, that's like us saying no wedding with, 
are no marriage without a wedding ring. And that, that both of those ideas are wrong. So, so it's important that they understand what the baptism of the Holy Ghost is. That's something that Jesus does. He indwells us. He covers us. The Holy Spirit seals us. That's something Jesus does for us. And the Bible couldn't be more clear. He does that for those who believe. Not for those who get baptized. For those who believe. The next thing they've got to understand too, you've got to explain to them the truth about tongues, that they've ceased. Because they will tell you, like in this statement of faith, that you have to have the filling of the Holy Ghost evidenced by speaking in tongues. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time, you know, we can preach a whole message just on tongues, but I just want to give you a few things that you can have ready, maybe mark in your Bible for when you run into people who think this. But 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And, 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 I'm, and I'm pointing this out too because we could spend a lot of time talking about the language thing. Okay? And obvi- that's obvious too. But the thing is, even if you convince them that, well, hey, no, that was them speaking in other languages. It wasn't this gibberish like you do. Even if you convince them that's it, you, we've still got to show them, well, wait a minute, why haven't we spoke, done that? You know, why aren't we speaking in other languages then? We've got to show them what happened to tongues. We've got to be able to explain why they're gone. And I do believe that they're gone. And here he, here he says, tongues shall cease. Why, now, why is that, though? Okay, why would they cease? It's important we understand this, and it'll help us if we understand why it started in the first place. First, so, verse 9, For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect or complete is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but uh, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, we're probably going to talk a little more about this in some of the next weeks as we go through the book of Acts. But just here's, here's a side note. In our study through the book of Acts, we just finished chapter 10. We've seen three major events where the gift of tongues were given and tongues were spoken. It was always in situations when the gospel is being preached to a new group of people that hadn't heard the gospel yet. It was a miracle. It was a sign proving that what these people were saying was from God. Hey, that's how it was every time. And did you know, at the point we are at, I don't know how many years the Bible doesn't tell us, but we are years after the resurrection of Christ. In Acts chapter 10, did you know at this point in history, none of the New Testament had been written yet? None of it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. While those events had all taken place, none of that has been written down and recorded. None of Paul's epistles have been written yet. They're still calling him Saul at the point we're at right now. He's just getting started. First and second Peter haven't been written yet. James hasn't been written yet. You know, none of the New Testament has been written at this point. And what that God was doing is God was manifesting his word through preaching. So they're preaching Old Testament, but they're using scripture of things that were shadows, things that were hidden. And so they're learning new truths during this time that were not understood before. So it would be very, it would be very needful and almost necessary for them to have some kind of sign that this was of God at that point. While these things are being introduced as God is revealing things 
They're going to need signs. But you know what? We've moved on from that. These things have been proven. The evidence has been given. The miracles have been done. The scriptures have been written. And you know what? We don't need them anymore. We don't need tongues anymore. And I do. And right there is a verse in the Bible where it says they shall cease. That doesn't say when. But we're seeing a principle here and it's talking about something else. You know, as far as, you know, what's to come that's complete. But we do see a principle here that just like when you're a child, there's things that you grow out of and that you put away. And when it came to the church in its infancy, it needed things like these miracles and the gifts of tongues. Folks, we are 2,000 years later. We have the completed scriptures. We don't need these things anymore. And so it's important that we're able to answer that and understand what's going on and why they're gone. And then after that, you can show them how it was never gibberish. It was, ne- it was never that. Acts 2, verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? They didn't even have interpreters. You know why they didn't have interpreters? Even though the Apostle Paul said if somebody speaks in tongues, they ought to have interpreters. Because this was a different speaking in tongues than even what Paul was talking about in Corinthians because he was just talking about speaking in other languages. And you know, and it would be pointless for us to have Brother Chris come up here and speak in one of the languages that only he knows and the rest of us don't. None of us are going to be edified by that unless we have an interpreter. But you know, we all get impressed that he knows another language. So you know, he can look and he can get done like, man, I nailed that. You know? I mean, I dropped some truth bombs on you all that would blow your mind if you could understand it. But it's like, you know what? We'd be wasting our time as a church to do that unless we have an interpreter. But you know what? I think he'd probably just rather, like Paul, just speak in his own language and speak in English, something we all understand. You know, and, and anything other than that, he's just kind of showing off. So here's another verse too that's very important to show to Pentecostals. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22. Because look, this is, again, this is why they had it back then. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say they are mad? But if all prophesy and there come in one that believeth not or one unlearned, he is convinced of all and he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. He said tongues aren't for those that believe. It's for those that believe not. So why do they always want to speak in tongues in church? Why do they always want to get together? Why is it that that one church in Sterling, they have so much space in between the platform and the front row? You know why they have that? So they're going to have room for the people that get filled with the Holy Ghost to go up and dance. And so all the old ladies can get up there and start speaking in tongues. And they always do it with their home crowd. They always do it amongst the believers 
But Bible said, Paul said, no, these things are for a sign for those who believe not. And that's why they used it in the, on the day of Pentecost when he's preaching the gospel to all these Jews because they didn't believe. And God used that so many of them would believe and many did end up believing. Same thing with the Samaritans. Same thing with Cornelius. These things needed some proof. And you know what? We have something that's actually better. We have this. But you know what? Pentecostals, they love having those emotional moments. They love all those spooky things. You know, they, they, they want something spiritual to happen. And let me tell you, Baptists are the same way. Man, I just want to say you move with God. That's code for shake things up, Lord. Get somebody to run a lap. Get somebody crying at the altar. Get somebody shedding a tear. I thought, you know, fine, the Holy Spirit's not going to do it. I'll do it then. I'm going to use my goat voice right now. I'm going to get myself all choked up. And then you're going to get yourselves all choked up. Pretty soon we're all going to be crying. We're all going to be hugging. Finally have a move of the Holy Ghost. Oh, I'd love to see that again like in the days of old. Yeah, you know, it's, this is manipulation. And let me tell you, it's influenced by Pentecostals. And it's especially big in the South. And I don't want to get I don't want to get sidetracked in this stuff, but I do. I love old time religion, but let me tell you, old time religion is getting hijacked by people that are looking for a southern style, early 1900s, late 1800s, Pentecostalist experience. That's what they're looking for. And listen, I, I like to have a good time in church. I like to get excited. I'm not against that kind of stuff, but we've got to stop trying to manufacture these things and stop trying to, you know, get, you know, just get so obsessed with this stuff and just trying to literally conjure things up in church. It's messed up and it did. It came from the Pentecostals and people like them. It came from the holiness crowd. It came from the Charles Finney's and people like that. They had really messed up gospels whose theology was really off, you know, and yeah, you know what? I'll preach on Baptists pretty soon, okay? Because I want to talk about it, but I don't have time tonight. And I can tell you want me to talk about it. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll save that. So uh, I, I need to move on. But, the, but I'm telling you, that kind of stuff, it has, it has influenced Baptists. And that's why there's a lot of confusion on this stuff. And, you know, tongues, you know, getting all hyped up with emotion where all of a sudden you just start speaking in some other language. Hey, I mean, that, that, that's a spiritual moment right there. It's not the right spirit, but it's something, it's something real. I just want to believe in something real. I, just want, I want to know there's something out there. Well, you know, why don't you just believe the Bible? You know, why do you have to have something come over on, come over you? I got to feel it. You know, you know why, why are you so dependent on that stuff? It's really weird, and I think I, I think a lot about this have let Pentecostals sneak some stuff in. And I hear Baptists say this down in the Bible Belt. They'll say things like, you know, them Pentecostals, they make some pretty good church members. We can just clean them up on eternal security and tongues. Listen, if they're not even cleaned up on eternal security, I don't think we have saved people right there. And you know what? I can't, I'm not too quick to say, nobody's not, you know, people aren't saved, but I, you're going to have a tough time convincing me somebody who speaks in tongues is saved. Even if they believe in eternal security. I believe in eternal security. The Holy Ghost spoke to me through tongues and told me that it's true. And so, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a Baptist because I believe in 
eternal security and speaking in tongues. I talked to a guy here in town one time that visited our church a couple times and he uh, went, you know, talked to him about the church and everything and trying to get his testimony and his testimony was all over the place. Went to a well-known Bible college years ago back when it was a decent college and uh, he told me, he's like, well, he's a past time, he's like, I'm, he's like, I'm a Baptist that believes in spiritual gifts. And I was pretty sure what he meant when he said that and I asked him, I was like, you know, can you clarify that for me? And he's basically, I believe in speaking in tongues. But he believes in Baptist doctrine. And yeah, and I had to tell him, well, yeah, that's not going to fly <laughs> over here. And he hasn't been back since then because he's not allowed to speak in tongues. But uh, yeah, that's it's not okay. Anybody speaks in tongues, it's going to be a visitor that just doesn't know any better. We're going to give him one pass. And they'll get a warning. After that, listen, you can't do that. You can't do that here. We're going to give them some time, try to work on them, try to get them saved. They speak in tongues a second time, they're gone. All right, we're not, we're not having none of that. I'll let it happen once because we would all enjoy it. It would be a good experience we could always talk about. Uh, so it would be worth it for that. But uh, that, that's, that's the only thing it would be good for, for the laugh. But turn over to Hebrews chapter 4. So another thing that you got to understand for Pentecostals and people influenced by them is that they, there is only one work, there's one work that there is that can bring salvation, and it was done by Jesus Christ. Okay, that's what we've got to understand. Yes, faith without works is dead. There is no point of faith if there is not some works. And that is true across the board, including salvation, but the Bible couldn't be more clear that when it comes to salvation, our faith is supposed to be in the works of Jesus Christ. That's what it's supposed to be in. But for some reason, all of a sudden when it comes to salvation, now cancel all that thing about trusting in Jesus Christ. And no, that's, you got to have your own works there too. No, that's, that's absolutely ridiculous. We're not going to go to James 2, but look what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Now, don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you have Jews who we are in the first century. The new covenant has come. The Messiah has come. Payment for sin has been made. And you're going to, and you're going to try to tell Jews who claim to have faith in God, who claim to be believers in God, who claim to believe the Word of God, you're going to tell these people that, hey, we're entering into a new era. Just like God in sundry times and divers manners spake in the past, in these last days, He's spoken unto us by His Son, Jesus Christ, and you know what? Some things have changed and it's very important that you get in on this change and that you don't do like your fathers did when they left Egypt and they died in the wilderness because they wouldn't trust God. They would not believe Him. They didn't trust what He said about the manna and how He was going to feed Him. And as a result of their lack of faith, they died in the wilderness. And Israel, Jews, you're at a new crossroads right now. You're in a new era right now. You're the people of God. But if you don't, Enter into His rest. If you make the same mistakes that our fathers did in the wilderness, just like they died in the wilderness and went to hell, you're going to die in your sins and you're going to go to hell. It is time to enter into His rest. And the way that we are going to do that, the way we're going to enter His rest, we are going to cease from our labors. And it says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So they had the gospel, but you know what they didn't have? They didn't have faith. And the gospel 
does not do anything for someone who does not have faith. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached enter not in because of unbelief. And people have got to get a hold of this fact that salvation, it's not, it's not the same as discipleship. It's a, it's a separate thing. Salvation is rest. Salvation is ceasing from your labors. Salvation is repenting of dead works and having faith in God. And let me tell you something about the Pentecostals too. The Pentecostals, while they say that salvation, you have to be baptized and you have to be filled with the Holy Ghost as evidence in speaking with tongues. You want to know what all of them also believe? That if you fall back into some grievous sin... They'll just teach you lost your salvation. You know, where the Baptocostals or the Baptist, you know, the Baptist influence, they'll just say, well, you're just never saved to begin with. You know, that, that, that's what they'll say. And what people need to understand is that no, salvation is rest. It's ceasing from labors. It's trusting in Jesus Christ. And most people today are trying to get saved by repenting of their sins, not by repenting of dead works. Hey, they're, they're, getting, they're trying to get saved by saying, I'm going to clean my life up now. I'm going to start doing good right now. I mean, me and Brother Chris, we just talked. We were blue in our face the other day with a guy. We tried following up with him today. He wasn't ready to get saved yet. He wanted us to come by uh, this week, talk to him again. We haven't got to yet. But that was a big hang-up for him. He was really struggling with his eternal security thing. You know, he, we showed him what the Bible says. He, he, he saw the facts and was agreeing with it, but it was just like, I'm not feeling it. You know, Pentecostals are all about that feeling. You know, you got to feel it. And it's like, no, I went to this passage with them. Show them, no, it's time to enter into his rest. It's time to cease from your labors. It's time to just rest in the fact that I am saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm trusting in him. He's going to take care of me. God's going to feed me. That's what salvation is right there. But what, you know what salvation is in your Pentecostal church and in pretty much every other church out there? It's a call to action. It's a call to work. And men, you better do it or you're going to lose it. Or if you're a Baptist, you never really had it. And you know what? There is no peace. There is no rest. And you say, well, if it's rest, you know, we you seem like you encourage us to work kind of hard as Christians. Not for your salvation. We're trying to get you to get some rewards. Okay? Listen, I could take a nap through the rest of this thing and I'm still going to go to heaven. But I'd like to get some rewards. Okay, That's a separate thing. We're trying to earn rewards right now and we're not really interested as a church in dealing with a bunch of Christians who just want to sleep through this whole thing. I mean, you can if you want to, but you know what? This crowd here, we want to do some work. We want to earn some rewards. I'd like to see the members of this church actually receiving rewards when they get in heaven. Not just being saved yet so is by fire. So... That's what we're all about. These are separate things. And a lot of Pentecostals struggle with this. They've got to get a hold of it. These are very key, very important. So the devil has many substitutes or different things that we can put our faith in. 
You know, for some it's baptism, tongues. Others, it's the fact that they're a soul winner. It's the fact that they go to church. It's the fact that they uh, never killed anybody, that they're a good person. They gave up their drinking. They gave up this. They gave up that. Uh, I almost died. I flatlined. And, you know, the Lord brought me back. You know, I mean, you hear those things all the time. I'm so, t- you know what? See, I think everybody in this town is flatlined at one time or God saved their life at one time. I'm so sick of that story. And people thinking they're saved because they almost died and they survived. Who is telling these people that that means that they're saved? I haven't figured out where that's coming from yet, but everybody in this town just about has almost died and they didn't and they think they're saved because of it. I just, I might need to preach a sermon on just dealing with that and that, because that, that is a common thing. Anybody else talk to those people? I, yeah, you've all talked to those people. This must be a really dangerous area. Everybody's almost getting killed all the time. It's absolutely, absolutely nuts. But listen, Titus 2, 3, or 3, 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Everybody wants to talk about what they did that got them saved. You know what we're supposed to be talking about? You know, it's his mercy. It wasn't by works of righteousness, which we had done, which it's what he did on the cross. A lot of people too, uh, you know, in that world, you know, they look at miracles. Said, you know, I should have died. You know, I had this experience. I prayed for this one time, and God did this for me. And then, you know, I, I prayed that I'd win the lottery, and I, you know, I did. You know, I prayed this would happen. They're always talking about this religious experience that they had, and because they had a religious experience, I know I'm saved. I talked to a lady one time. I, I, I was so excited. I, these people visited the church a few times. And there was a bunch of people living in this house. I was probably talking to like 10 people at one time in this house. And they were listening intently as I'm giving them the gospel. Brother Netterville was with me when I went to these people's house. And I went and man, I nailed it. I mean, I preached the gospel. I mean, it was good. It was clear. I'm thinking this whole house is going to get saved. And then the matriarch of the family. Okay. A husband was not the head of that household. She speaks up. And she informed me that she knew that she was saved and she opened up her Bible and showed me the proof of her salvation. You know where it was? It was in a picture that she had. It was like an, uh, from an olden day camera. And it was like one of the, it was, it looked kind of like one of these double exposure things. And it was like a picture of the sky and clouds. And you could see a figure in there that kind of looked like Jesus. And whenever she starts having doubts and wonder, wondering about things, she looks at that picture and she knows he's real. That's not salvation. And I couldn't convince her otherwise. And the rest of the family, you know, a lot of times, you know, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, now shall be saved and thy house. It's kind of how it is a lot of times. And as head of the family, she wasn't getting saved and nobody else did either. It was really, it was really disappointing. But you know, when people have their experiences, it is so hard to convince them that these things are not salvation, that they are not of God. Something I often tell people is like, well, hey, listen, maybe God spared your physical life to give you an opportunity for eternal life. Because, and I always tell them this too, because you, here, you know, okay, God saved you from that car wreck, but you know you're going to die of something else eventually. I always, I always tell people that. And that's worked before. Sometimes that's worked. But I'll always remind them, if they bring that up, just remember, you're going to die of something else. So God can't just keep saving you from all those things over and over again. Something's eventually going to get you. It gets everybody. So 
important for them to understand that. But you know, you know, they do. They'll look at miracles. And listen, I believe in miracles. But you know what? The devil can do miracles. Revelation six fourteen. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles. I mean, folks, Satan's going to do many signs and lying wonders. Second Corinthians eleven fourteen. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Maybe that was a heavenly figure, but maybe it was the covering cherub. Maybe it was Lucifer himself. I don't know. It was probably just a double exposure picture. But either, either way you look at it, I don't care if you do see an angel. Satan can be transformed into an angel of light. We don't depend on these things gifts to heaven. But you know what? Go try to tell a Pentecostal that's seen an angel before that they're not saved. Even though they're professing you know, faith plus works. Even though they don't believe in eternal security. Even though they believe they could still go to hell if they sin enough. So the, the, they... I'm telling you, they put a lot of stock in these things. And so just like the Catholics, it comes down many times to a difference in final authority. Ours is the Word of God. For the Catholics, it's the church. It's the Pope. But for the Pentecostal, it's their experience. You don't know what I felt. I don't care what you felt. I talked to a Pentecostal lady one time in Rock Falls. I could show you where her house is. And, and uh, you know, I brought up, you know, uh, what we believe in everything. She's like, well, what do you all believe about tongues? And I told her, and I won't go into that whole thing. She didn't appreciate it at all. But one of the things she said, she said, what would you do if someday you saw someone do it? And I said, wouldn't change anything. I said, I, I literally told her this. I said, I wouldn't care if they spoke in tongues and even walked on water. I'm not going to believe it. We're supposed to follow the Bible. Satan can do miracles. Satan, Satan imitated a lot of the plagues uh, that happened in, in Egypt. He, he can imitate things that God does. I said, I don't go off my experience. I don't go off things that the, I see in this world. We go off the Bible. And I said, what you're talking about is not in the Bible. And so who cares? These things don't matter, but they do to the Pentecostals. And so you've got to show them. I think this is a good passage. 2 Peter 1.16. Peter speaking. It says... For we have not followed cunningly devised fables. The Bible is not just stories written by men, even though man wrote these things. It says, When we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And he's making reference to what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was there. He saw it. For we, ye received from God the Father, or he received from God the Father, honor and glory, when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, unto the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. So notice he said, we have something better than our eyewitness for you. We have a more sure word of prophecy. He said, that's, that's what we have for you. A more sure word of prophecy. Yeah, I've got an eyewitness account, but you have the word of God. You have prophecy. You have the word of God. It's better than an eyewitness testimony. Because let me tell you something. Eyewitness testimony is not 100%, is it? How many of you, you know, when you get together with family, often have arguments when you start you know, going down memory lane and telling stories and you all have different accounts of that story? We all have that, especially when I'm talking with my sisters and talking about trouble that you know we got into. It was always their fault when I'm telling it, but if they tell it, it's always my fault. 
I'm pretty sure I'm telling the truth. Hey, you know, I think if I took a lie detector test, I'd pass. But we've got a different account. You know why? Because our memories, you know, they're not perfect. We remember things wrong. So, you know, that's not the best thing. But let me tell you, the Scripture, it is. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. This was a man just writing down what they thought they wanted. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's better than what you've experienced. You know what? Again, and point out the flaws in their memory. And show that, no, the Word of God. We don't see anywhere in the Bible we're supposed to just go off experience. We're supposed to go off the Word of God. And Pentecostals got to get a hold of that. And so another possibly effective argument that could have an impact, you know, is showing them too, listen, it's possible for you to be bewitched. Look at what it says in Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ had been evidently set forth and crucified among you. You know, they like all the spooky stuff. They like all the spiritual stuff. They get all caught up into demons and all that kind of thing. So he's like, you know what? It's very possible you've been bewitched. All right, you know, get all spooky with them. And what does it look like to be bewitched? Well, notice it says here, this is only what I learned. You receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you in the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith, even as Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are children of Abraham. You've been talking this whole time about all your works. You've been talking about this whole, this whole time about all the things that you've done to get saved. You've been bewitched. Yes, yeah, something spiritual happened to you. I'll tell you what it was. It was of the devil. It was, uh, it was of Satan that you feel that way. You've been bewitched. You've been deceived by a demon-possessed false prophet. And you know what you need to do? You need to get a hold of what God's Word says. And remember how Abraham got saved. He believed God. And it was a kind of end for righteousness. So yeah, something spiritual happened. There was a spirit involved in what you did that got you caught up in all this stuff. But it was not a spirit of God. It was another spirit. And Galatians talks about that too. And so that's what you've got to show them. Because folks say, well, that's me. And they're not going to like hearing that. But it's the truth. It's the truth. We've got to explain to them what happened. They know something spiritual happened to them. They felt something inside of them. And there was something inside of them. But Satan can be transformed in an angel of light. You can be bewitched. You can be deceived. You can be influenced by demons. You can be possessed by demons. And they've got to get a hold of what the Bible says and say, look, the people that were bewitched thought that they were saved by the works of the law, just like you. And what did Paul say? No. You, what happened? You could be bewitched that way. Abraham didn't get saved by works. He got saved by faith. And so that's important. You understand this. And then so the last point I'm not even going to talk about, but I'm just going to mention it because it's just a fact. You have to show this to Pentecostals. Uh, but Pentecostals, they have to understand eternal security. I mean, a lot of Pentecostals, they know they're saved right now. A lot of Pentecostals, you ask them, are you 100% sure if you die today, you go to heaven? Yeah, I was just at church. I just spoke in tongues today. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. But, you have to follow up with them. Do you believe there's anything you do to lose your salvation? Oh, yeah. You know why? Because they're trusting in their works. 
They are trusting in their works. And I think you all know the scriptures on eternal security. And if you don't, you know, I can give you plenty of references to sermons and things I've preached on that. But Pentecostals believe in work salvation. And proof of that is their rejection of eternal security. And so you, you have to cover that with them. You know, and one of the mistakes that I think a lot of people in the IFB make is they don't do a good enough job covering eternal security when they go soul winning. And I don't believe that it is ne- it's a, always necessary to cover that. I think when you cover John 3.16, you've covered eternal security. Okay? I think it's clearly implied, but we have to be aware of the major heresy that has come into churches teaching that you can lose your salvation. And so, uh, I, I, you know, so the thing is, most people have been infected by that in one way or another. And so they're going, you, you must, I think it's so important that you clarify that. You make sure that they've got that. But I think most people, and I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, they, they've never heard a full sermon on that, but they just naturally get that. Well, yeah, eternal life. What else would that be? Yeah, not of works. You know, you do, I do believe you have to teach people originally that they can lose their salvation to get people thinking that way. But unfortunately, most people have been taught that. So it's very, very important to cover that. But it's especially important with Pentecostals or people under that influence because I promise you they've been taught that you can lose your salvation and they must, they must repent of that. So whenever we talk about our salvation... Our salvation, we should always base it on what the Scripture says. We should always talk about what Jesus did. We can't go around telling our own story. I'm I'm all for people giving their testimony and talking about how they heard the gospel and how they got saved. But when you go when you go soul winning, these people they don't know you. They don't care about your story. You understand that they 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 probably don't care about your story. They need Jesus' story. That's the one that's that's the one that's going to get them saved. And we've got to keep the, and the thing is, if you tell your story too much, because here's what everybody does too. You know, before I got saved, I used to, and right there they ruin it. You know because they do? They name a sin. I used to have long hair. I used to drink. I used to say bad words. And then Jesus saved me. And, and, and you don't have to say it, but I just noticed your hair is not short or long anymore. I know she's not saying any bad words. You don't seem drunk. And then we wonder why people think they've got to repent of their sins to be saved. Well, I didn't say they had to. Well, you kind of implied it by talking about all these things that changed. That guy doesn't want to get his hair cut right now. You know, I mean, just you got to watch out for stuff like that. We've got to be very, very careful because there's a lot of confusion out there because... It's not like back in Paul's day where you're kind of going and talking to blank slates. We're talking to people today that have been majorly corrupted and deceived and lied to in really bad ways. And so we've got to, be, we've got to make sure that we're very clear in what we say and that we have some wisdom in how we present these things so we can make sure as we give them the exact same story about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but that we deal with any hang-ups that they might have that would cause them to misunderstand the gospel or just not get it at all. And so hopefully these things we covered tonight will help you as you deal with those who 
are Pentecostal or have been influenced in that way. So with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for uh, Your Word and the clear Scriptures that we have in this area. I pray, Lord, You'll help us to be effective uh, in this area. Lord, there are so many people in this area and in our community that have been uh, influenced by the teachings of the Pentecostal Church. And I pray, Lord, that You'll help us to have wisdom, help us to be prepared uh, as we go and we uh, talk to these people so we can... Uh, just shine the light of the gospel, show them the error of their ways, and I pray that we can see many of them saved and, and come to faith in you. In your name we pray. Amen.